couple of introductory comments here. I hope you were able to either download or print out that revision <clears throat> that I sent you because uh, the basic outline doesn't change. It's some of the charts and so on. And so that on page three, that chronological chart, uh, which is what I referred to last week, and none of you knew what I was talking about. So <laughs> uh, that's, that's all right. But uh, maybe draw your attention to that because one of the um, – one of the items I think that really important when you're studying something like this is to try to determine, can, can we identify some of the individuals mentioned in Scripture, uh, pharaohs, for example, and other individuals, or even the time periods? Because if we can, then we can get a broader understanding of as God is dealing with his people Israel it's in the context of real-time historical events and real-time historic people and so on. And that's why I, uh, I mean, my basic training is in his, history and historical theology, so that's important to me just personally, but I don't think, think it's important biblically. So if you take a look at this, again, this chart, this timeline chronology uh, uh, chart on page three, it's just reminding you of a couple of things that you should already know, but you have the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and in parenthesis, below each name is the birth and de uh, death date of each one of the patriarchs. And uh, the most recent one we studied was, of course, Joseph, who's actually one of the sons of Jacob. Then you have the captivity, which is what we are just beginning to talk about in the book of Exodus. And uh, just identifying a couple of dates that I think are important, not that you'll remember these and memorize them, but at least a chart like this can help you. When Jacob entered his, took his clan and entered into Goshen under the protection of Joseph, that year is 1876 B.C. And they are, that begins, so the clock begins to tick. Then how long are they in Egypt? The answer to that question is 430 years. And so if you just now go across the bottom, let your eye go across the bottom, we're going to talk a little bit more about this because we just started that in chapter 2. Moses is born in 1526 B.C. So the question then becomes, how do we date the Exodus itself? If Moses is born in 1526, and we'll read this as we go through chapter 2, he spends 40 years in the educational system of Egypt. Let's talk about that, what that meant, and so on. Then he will spend 40 years in the Midian Desert because he runs from Pharaoh, and you know perhaps some of those circumstances. And it is only when he's 80 years old that he is ready, from God's perspective, to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, which again, is we'll, we'll see how that all fits together. So if you then let your eye go to the chart that's on page 4, which would be the next page, the title of this chart is, Who Was the Pharaoh of the Exodus? That's a very important historical question. And so what this chart does is it shows you the two major options. So this is sometimes called the early Exodus date or the late Exodus date. And so if you look at the bottom, of the, the chart is two parts. The bottom, this is the material and the defense of the early Exodus date. This is the material and defense of the late Exodus date. So in other words, the key, the key is, 
The early Exodus date is 1446 B.C. What was that again? 1446 B.C. You can see it right here. The late Exodus date is, an, is a little variation on this, 1280, 1278, uh, and so on. Okay? Now, if Moses is born in 1526 and he's 80 years old when he's ready to lead the children of Israel out, 1446 fits better than 12. In addition, um, um, Judges chapter 6, verse 1 talks about from the time of the uh, building of the te uh, temple by Solomon, going backwards uh, to the time of, of, of Moses and the Exodus, can only fit with 1446 BC, plus a number of other pieces of evidence. So in the, in the book that I wrote on the covenant people, I give a fairly significant defense of this early Exodus date, and it's on page 18 of my book. Not that you have to look, but if you're really interested in digging into this problem, the material I have on page 18, 17, 18, and 19 really helps work through this historical discussion. I would say this. Probably most um, conservative uh, Semitic scholars, and remember conservative doesn't have anything to do with politics. It's in terms of the conservative approach to scripture, uh, would argue for an early date, 1446. Everyone I studied under when I had my Semitic studies in graduate school would advocate for a 1446 uh, B.C. date. It's a, a much later in the historical analysis of this, does this late date come into uh, come into favor? And it's only among more, um, and again, I hate to put label, I don't know how to put it, the more theologically liberal do you have the attempt to defend a late Exodus date. So if you don't understand much of what I was just saying or care, don't worry about it. It isn't that big of a deal. But I want you to be aware of this discussion, and also that from here on out, I am going to go with a 1446 uh, B.C. Exodus date, okay? So given that, then you can see, because that's the way I'm going to be using the names, if you have a uh, an early Exodus date, 1446, and we've already talked about that, then the Pharaoh who enslaves the Egypts, uh, the Israelites and makes that decree and begins those genocidal policies is Amenhotep and then his son, Thutmosis. And then that means that, as we're going to read here in just a minute, the woman who will rescue Moses from the Nile. And you'll see that on that chart at the very top of the chart on the left side is Hatshepsut. Okay, huh? Which page? That would be the one on page uh, four at the top there, Hatshepsut, because she was the daughter of Pharaoh, that is childless, uh, and she adopts Moses, and so on. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So she then becomes the second female Pharaoh. Yes, she's one of the few pharaoh, female pharaohs in history. And she was really, for a while, I mean, she ruled, 
it's these bizarre things that these monarchs and kings and queens do. She married her brother uh, to preserve, that's just what they did to preserve that, uh, that dynastic line and then was co-regent with him for a while until he died and she assumed the responsibility of the pharaoh. I, I did a little extra reading. Good. And, and there was, there was, they were saying that Moses, who she adopted then, also helped her stay within that dynastic line because she had a male heir, mm -hmm. uh, and, and even though it was an adopted child, she had a, a male heir. Right. And then you see this here in the, uh, in the chart as well. Moses the third would have been the Pharaoh that when Moses kills that Egyptian mm -hmm. and flees, he's running from him. Because this Moses the third, by the way, Moses the third rules for over 40 years as Pharaoh. He's one of the most powerful, one of the most significant pharaohs of the new kingdom. Remember, we talked a little bit about how you divide Egyptian history. And he, he was an incredibly powerful pharaoh. And so he perceived Moses as a threat because it is hard. Why would a pharaoh care? Why would he care that some guy kills an obscure official? Because he's just the way I get rid of pharaoh. Uh, this is the way I get rid of Moses because he's a threat to me being pharaoh. And so he takes out after Moses in an attempt to get rid of him for doing something that for the most part, I mean, in ancient Egypt, life was cheap. No, I mean... They wouldn't care that he did that unless he's a threat to the pharaoh's security as, as, as his uh, ruler. And, and pharaoh is a very, uh, Moses III is a very powerful, very significant. If you just study secular history, never even talk about how the Bible intersects with it. Moses III is always one of the most significant pharaohs of, of ancient Egypt. So it's, it's just fascinating study how all of this works out. So therefore, Amenhotep II is the pharaoh of, of the Exodus. When we get into chapter 7 and so on, and when you see that Moses is saying to Pharaoh, let my people go, and the pharaoh mocks him and all that stuff, that's Amenhotep II. By the way, if you ever go to the British Museum, and the only reason I know because my son lives there, I've been there many times. If you go to the British Museum, there are statues and artifacts and memorabilia all over the place from this period. There's huge statues of Amenhotep II, of Amenhotep I, of Thutmosis III, because remember, for, for quite a period of time, uh, the British Empire owned Egypt, and they really plundered the artifacts and brought them to the British Museum. I should say plundered. That's a, such a negative term. But they really, in all their archaeological digs, which Egypt, uh, which the British did with, with great uh, excitement and thoroughness, uh, brought a lot of these artifacts back to the British Museum. And so this period that we're studying right now in terms of Egyptian history is a, a rich period. It's a, it's a very significant period. And so a lot of artifacts, a lot of understanding about these pharaohs that's missing with some of the older pharaohs, particularly of the uh, old kingdom. So, again, I'm probably telling you more than you really care about or you're interested in. But it's just being able to put some of this in real space-time history adds to the interest and helps us then to get a little bit of an idea of what, what is going on in back of these verses. Because the scripture isn't interested in Amenhotep II. The scripture is interested in Israel and what Moses is doing, and getting them out of slavery, 
and get him into the promised land. That's what, that's what Scripture's interested in. It's the redemptive themes that are in back of, uh, of these parts of the Bible, uh, in, in this case, the book of Exodus. All right, did I lose you? Or are you with me? Any questions? Just going to it. So these charts, don't be afraid next week if you go back to this and look at it. I don't remember anything you told me. I'd be happy to review it. Okay? All right, with all of that introductory stuff said, let's look now in chapter two. Remember, chapter one of the book is essentially a summary, very, very brief, of how they got to Egypt under Pharaoh, uh, Achmosis, but through um, Joseph and the protection, etc. Once they're there, and the new kingdom starts, and the pharaohs did not remember Joseph or any of the commitments. And there's this tremendous population explosion. And then we reviewed real quickly the three, I called them very, maybe brass, but I think it's the right way to say it, three genocidal policies of the pharaoh to stave this, this, uh, this population explosion. So I, looking at the dates, it was from Joseph's death till when... Um, and the, uh, the pharaoh. It doesn't know uh, uh, yeah. Joseph Amenhotep the first. It would be. Yeah, that was that was um, about three hundred and thirty years. <clears throat> so that that kind of explains why why the the legacy of Joseph uh, would have been forgotten. Yeah, you know? exactly, exactly. And we explained again that may not be important to you. We explained that between the time when Joseph passes from the scene and so on, and then where we are in Genesis, in Exodus chapter 1, another major event had occurred in Egypt's history, the invasion of that Semitic, nomadic, raider people called the Hyksos, who had occupied the Nile Delta, a little bit farther south, down to about Memphis or so. And that was a tremendous threat to Egypt. And so they, most historians argue they looked at the Jews, because they, the Jews are Semitic people, in the same way, that fear. And as we read last week, when a war breaks out, in verse 10, they'll join our enemies and fight against us. So the government of Egypt, as the new kingdom is dawning, looks at this population explosion of the Jews in Goshen as a threat to national security. And so they begin, they now, under the auspices of Pharaoh, begin these policies to try to reduce that population threat, and actually uh, engage in a genocidal policy, killing all the male children, and so on. All right? I'd love to give you a thought paper assignment on this. But. Didn't they refer to you at that time what year it was? Because there was obviously no common calendar. And that's that's right. Come up with this arcane way of counting backwards. Well, it is, and that's one of the real problems of particularly ancient Egyptian history, because every time a new pharaoh, and even more specifically, a new dynasty comes into power, they get rid of all the old dates and all the old names, they start over again, which just drives, it's, it is a major problem. Now, most historians, because this has been studied, because you know, ancient Egyptian history is, is thousands and thousands of years, you, know, it's, you go from the beginning of the dynasties of ancient Egypt, about 3200 B.C., all the way up to Cleopatra. Because Cleopatra is the last of the pharaohs. 
And remember, then Rome takes over Egypt and so on. So that's an incredibly long period of time. So it's 3,000 years. And even Pharaoh's starting over again. That's just, But they worked through it. Uh, I think they, for the most part, we've got pretty accurate numbers of when these different pharaohs and different dynasties start and when they end and so on. And uh, yeah, it's it's really it's really uh, ancient history and particularly Semitic studies is very very complex. What's Semitic mean? Semitic, uh, Semitic. Uh, it's it's an ethnic name. They're all the descendants of Shem. Remember Ham, Shem, and Japheth, sons of Noah, and all the Semitic peoples are those who are descended from Shem. And the Jews are part of that. They're Semitic. All right. We've spent 20 minutes on this, but that's good. <coughs> I'll spend four hours on it, but you don't want to. But I do. Chapter 2 is in the midst of these policies of the Egyptian government is the birth of Moses. And we, we covered some of this last week, but you, you know, we, we learned chapter 6. His mother's name is Jochebed. His father's name is Amram. They're just identified at the beginning, but we'll learn later what their names are. And she gives birth to her son, Moses, tries to hide him. It's impossible to hide a child for very long. So she makes the decision to, and this is, I believe this is intentional on her part, she knew about Hatshepsut, and she knew that she was without a child. So she strategically puts Moses in this little basket along the Nile, so that this basket would, would go right to where Hatshepsut daily bathed. And so, indeed, we find out that she goes down, she saw the basket on the reeds, sent her female slaves to get it. Verse 6, she opened it, saw the baby. He was crying. She felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Now, how she knew that, how she could identify it, the text doesn't say. It may have been the way in which he was wrapped. If you've seen the movie The Ten Commandments, it's because of the blanket he was wrapped in. Whether we, not, we just don't know. But here's why there's an intentionality to what Jochebed is doing, Moses' mother is doing. Verse 7, then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Who is, who is Moses' sister? Miriam. It's Miriam. She's a little older than Moses. And so why is she there? Well, she was sent by her mother to watch the basket. And again, I believe this is intentional on her part, and it's God's providence is all over this chapter. But the, the, the point is, she then suggests, well, okay, you recognize that the Hebrew, should I go get a Hebrew person, a Hebrew woman, to nurse this baby? Because Hatshepsut isn't going to nurse him. So verse 8, she said, yes, go. And the girls went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I'll pay you. <laughs> Coincidence just happens or God's providence. And so it's absolutely amazing the providence and sovereignty of God. Moses is rescued from the genocidal policies of Pharaoh into the court of Hatshepsut. And his mother is going to nurse him and get paid for it. I know that's just a coincidence. 
So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she, the she is Pharaoh's daughter, Hatshepsut, she named him Moses. Moses is a common Egyptian name. As I mentioned a moment ago, there's some boy in here now. As I mentioned a moment ago, the other the other boy in the court is Thutmosis. T H U T Moses. Thutmosis. And you see his name <coughs> on that one chart. So Moses is a very common name because it is associated with water. It's associated with the Nile. So she gives him the title Moses because he was taken out of the water. So you you just have this um, very remarkable and just absolutely staggering evidence of the providence of God here. Now, what the book of Exodus here does not do, but Acts chapter 7, Stephen's great sermon, and Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23, 24, 25, fill in some additional details. That while he is in, he, Moses, is in the court of Hatshepsut, he gets the best education possible. We have discovered the, the texts were Acts 7, verse 22 and following, and Hebrews 11, verse 23, 24 and following. They just add some additional details. In Stephen's great sermon in Acts 7, and then the author of Hebrews in chapter 11, fills in just a little bit of detail about he received an incredibly important education. We have found the ruins because at this time, the pharaohs had moved the head of uh, what's called the capital of the, of the empire of Egypt to Memphis, which is not very, <clears throat> not very far down the Nile. And we have discovered in archaeological diggings a very significant school system, kind of a complex, maybe a better way to talk about it. And that is no, no doubt the complex where Moses would have studied. What would he have learned? What would he have studied in the court of Pharaoh under that, that royal school for the, for the royalty and the nobility where they sent their kids? What well, he, he would have learned several languages, not only Egyptian hieroglyphics, but he would have learned the Canaanite languages, Garitic and others. He would have learned the history of this period. He would have learned the history of ancient Egypt. He would have studied the, uh, we would call it um, the science that was associated with astrology and all of that, moving of the planets and so on, and how to tell time wherever you are, which is really important. And then he would have learned the geography. <coughs> Excuse me. He would have learned the geography of this region. He would not only learn the geography of the Nile, he would have learned the geography of Canaan because Egypt had massive trading complexes all over Canaan and down, down the Arabian Peninsula. Um, in your, I, I don't know if you're really interested in this, but I'm going to do it even if you're not. On page 9 of your map, uh, of your packet, is a map. Uh, and I, I just, just highlight a couple of things here. You might notice here, again, right above the box that has the route of the Exodus, right above the word route, you will see Memphis. See that? That's the capital. At this period in history of Egypt, that's the capital. That's where the pharaoh's main thing. 
Now, what would Moses have studied? He would have studied the geography of this whole area. He would have studied, studied the geography of this because the route, the route that the Israelites are going to follow as they go down along the eastern side of the Arabian Peninsula, that's a major trade route. That's a major trade route. And they did a tremendous amount of trade for both minerals as well as spices in the entire southern Arabian Peninsula. Today we would call it Yemen. And he would have studied the ent this entire area, all these major trade routes that go into Canaan that ultimately connect with trade in Mesopotamia. So all of this Moses is learning. Is that important for him to learn that? Is he going to lead several million Jews around Arabia and up into Canaan? He's got to know the geography. He's got to know how to tell time in the desert. All of this he is, he is learning, if you will, uh, and it again, it's it's coincidental from a human perspective. It's providential from a biblical perspective. As he is in the court of Hatshepsut and in these very significant schools, God is preparing him for what he's going to do later in his life. So he he is he is he has the absolute best education you could possibly have in the ancient world. And then we go to verse eleven. All right, any questions? I'm filling in a little detail, and embellishing it a bit, if you wish. But and Not only was it the best education, but it was perfectly suited for what he was going to do. Yeah, no question. I mean, he could have been educated in probably other aspects mm -hmm. of Egyptian culture. That's right. But not. That's so right. Historians cannot agree on the route even. So just no, no, there's, and it is a little either route of the Exodus. You mean, Dave? Don't you mean? Yeah, there is, there is discussion about that, but again, um, when you start analyzing the options, this is about the only really viable option. There's no way they would have gone west. Excuse me, east. Up that 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 major that major trout that they would run right into all the Egyptian garrisons, which that's stupid. That would never work. And it, it seems reasonable to conclude where they went fits best with the biblical data. And, and we'll go through that when we get to that, uh, which is not until we get to about Exodus 10, 12, 13, and so on. All right. Let's pick up with verse 11 of chapter 2. One day, now if you follow Acts chapter 7, verse, 30, uh, verse 23, it's 40 years. One day, i.e., Moses is 40. If you follow what is in Exodus, sorry, Acts chapter 7, verse 23, Stephen's sermon, <coughs> Moses is now 40. After Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at the hard labor. Why he does this, we don't know. But he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and left him in the sand. I am going to deliver my people. I am going to free my people. So there's this sense, this awareness of who he is and that he is now going to be an advocate for his people. How does he come to that realization? The Bible does not explain it to us. But he comes to an understanding of who he is. So He's kind of taken things into his own hands. So verse 13, the next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting, and he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler 
and judge over us. Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? So, by the way, that word in verse 14, who made you ruler, you could translate that Hebrew word deliverer. Who made you our deliverer? Who, who made you the one who's going to rule and judge and deliver us? Well, you're, you, you did that blatant act of murder yesterday. Are you going to murder us too? So what we see here is Moses was unafraid and thought, what I did must have become known. So again, the Bible is not explain all of this to us. But that he had killed an Egyptian is now fairly well known. And immediately he thinks of this. If Pharaoh finds out about this, I'm a dead man. Now why? And again, uh, you, you look at that chart on page four. If we are correct in looking at the early Exodus data as the correct date that matches best with the biblical information and data, then this is Thutmosis III. This is Thutmosis III, is the pharaoh. She grew up in, he grew up in Hatshepsut's court, just as Moses grew up in Hatshepsut's court. Hatshepsut was co-regent with Thutmosis III. They would have played together. They probably went to school together. But because Hatshepsut had adopted Moses as her son, Moses is a threat to Thutmosis III. Threat to his legitimacy as the Pharaoh. <coughs> so, verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of this, heard of what? That Moses had killed an Egyptian. He tried to kill Moses. Again, I mean, this why is Pharaoh going to care about some obscure event miles from his capital? He wouldn't unless this is a threat to his kingdom, threat to his rule. And Moses was. So Moses then fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. All right, now, again, just another piece of historical information. Pharaoh, sorry, Moses is going to be in Midian for about 40 years. What Pharaoh in this entire period best fits? Moses III. Because Moses III will be Pharaoh for over 40 years. Because Moses will not return to Egypt and the capital and Goshen and all that until Moses III is dead. So again, it's just trying to just buttress a little bit of some of the information that Scripture is giving us from what we know about history, I'm rather confident that this Pharaoh that is threatening to kill Moses is Thutmosis III. Are you with me? Okay, again, I'm just, and we know a lot about this Pharaoh. Again, if you go to the British Museum, there's a great deal on him that's, uh, that's there. Now, where's Midian? Midian Midian, if you, again, if you look at that map on uh, page uh, 9, I believe it is, <clears throat> Midian is over here. You have to go, you know, let your eye go. Midian is on the east side of the Gulf of Aqaba. 
east side of this Arabian Sea, on the east side, it's wherever it's a desert, it's a very, very, very barren desert area. Why does he go all the way over there? Safety, security, he's pretty far away from Pharaoh. He's away from the trade routes, he's away from the mines, he's somewhere where he's away from all of the spices, what today would be modern Yemen. He's over in the desert. He's in a place of safety. So that, I mean, it's not, I'd never go there. I'd never go there, but he's going to be there for 40 years. So, okay, now again, I'm adding some historical detail, but trying to hopefully give some important historical context to this. So now he's in Midian. He's afraid of Pharaoh. He's running for his life. He's in Midian, verse 16. Now a priest of Midian will learn in verse 18, his name is Ruel. We'll learn in chapter 3, his name is also Jethro. So Jethro, Ruel, is a prince. He's a leader of the Midianites. He's a very important clan leader. Because remember, in the ancient, it's still that way today, much in the Middle East, in the ancient world, the major social organization of this part of the world were clans. So he's a big clan leader. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the trough to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to the rescue and watered their flock. Okay, simple, but yet here you see Moses taking that advocate of justice, advocate for those who are distressed, advocate for those who are in trouble, and he drives out these shepherds who are threatening the daughters of Ruel or Jethro. When the girls return, verse 18, to Ruel, remember that's just another name for Jethro, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered our flock. Where is he? Verse 20, he asked his daughter. Why did you leave him? Invite him here to have something to eat. Verse 21, Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Now, what the Bible's doing here is telescoping it's, it sounds like one day he rescues the fox, the next day he's married to Zipporah. It isn't quite like that. It's just telescoping down. What's happening here is God providentially superintending all of these events. This is the woman who mar- whom Moses will marry, Zipporah. And she's the daughter of Ruel, Jethro, this very significant and presumably powerful clan leader in the Midianites. And she gives birth to a son. His name is Gershom, saying, I become a foreigner in a foreign land. All right. During that long period, verse 23 says, how long is this long period? 40 years. 40 years. So again, all the text is doing is summarizing in about three sentences what happens in this 40-year period. And we don't need to know anything else in terms of, of the, the importance of what Moses does. This isn't important. All this is telling us is how is God preparing this man to be the deliverer of Israel. All right, now, um, 
Before we get to verse 23, let's just think about this for just a moment or two. If you're God, and I know that's a ridiculous statement, but if you are God and you want to prepare a man to be the deliverer of your people, an obstinate, stubborn, hard-hearted, difficult to get along with people, how would you prepare him? Because he's going to have to lead him out of Egypt, down to Mount Horeb, or sometimes called Mount Sinai, receive the law, and then take them into the promised land. Now, what they're going to find out is they're going to be disobedient. They're going to spend another 40 years running around the desert. If you're going to prepare a man to do all that, how would you prepare him? Say, say again? He'd have to be very confident. Very confident? Very certain of who he is? Yeah, very outspoken. Didn't really care what people thought of him. Okay. Patience. Man of patience, fortitude, stamina, well-educated. Mm-hmm. Tutored by some right. experienced leaders like yeah. Jethro. Yeah, yeah. Somebody that, if somebody had some argument, he would be able to defeat the argument okay. with everything, and he would just know lots of stuff. Yeah, so he's going he's gonna to have to be really well-prepared. So the first 40 years of Moses' life, God is preparing him in the absolute best schools in the ancient world. That's the best place he could have gone to school. There's no better place he could have gone to school. And so he learns, he's learning everything he needs to know intellectually, how to think, how to reason, how to work through problems. But what has he not learned? Humility, dependence on God. Where does he learn that? In the Midian Desert. So it's in, it's kind of it's just an interesting thing to just reflect on and think about. How did God prepare Moses? He prepared him in two stages. The absolute best educational system of the ancient world. But he's not ready. That fostered pride, a degree of arrogance. I'll take things into my own hand. I'm going to kill the Egyptian, and I'll cover it up, and it'll be fine. So now he has to learn dependence. There's no better place to do that than a desert. Chapter 3 is going to give us just a little window into what that was like, because that's where you have the burning bush. But he's learning dependence on God. So 40 years in the best school, 40 years in the wilderness. He's 80 years old. Now he's ready. And you point out in Genesis, here's another example too, where um, the wife isn't his wife isn't Jewish. Yes, that's right. That's right. She is not Jewish. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. She's a Midianite. <clears throat> so you you have this interesting way in which God prepares people. That's why I've said over the many many years I've been in higher education and so on. I've used Moses as an example of what, uh, in a wonderful little book called The Disciplines of the Christian Life, uh, there's a little chapter called The Discipline of Delay. And in that little chapter, uh, you, you could fit Moses into that. Moses thought he was ready. No, you're not ready. Delay. Delay. Because as God, as God is preparing someone, God's method and God's timetable is almost always different than the one we set up for ourselves. God is constantly preparing us 
for the next step that he has in our lives, regardless of our age. And so you just is it, this with Moses is just a classic example of it. God took 80 years to prepare this man. And he's uh, subjecting him. I mean, he, he's had some of the same reactions to God before he becomes their deliverer that the children of Israel on this journey are, are going to offer back to him Absolutely. as a challenge. But Absolutely. because he's been there, <clears throat> it doesn't turn him upside down. He deals with it in, according to how God wishes him to. Right, and in a way that always has uh, the larger big picture in mind. God is building a nation. I am the instrument he's using to do that. And I know there are a couple of times we're going to read about this. It's really funny. There are a couple of times where God will, or the children of Israel will just rebel and all that. And, okay, Moses, I'm going to wipe them out. And, God, and Moses says, God, hold it. You can't do that. And how Moses stands in the gap. And it's a test of Moses' character and his leadership. But Moses is really an ideal leader. If, if, if I can put it that way. Ideal in the sense of how God has prepared him to do what God wants him to do. Is it going to slip? Yes. Numbers 20 is one of the most important slips in Moses' leadership. <clears throat> he will have to live with the consequences of that. But still, it's a, just a great, great... So I wanted to take, before we get to verse 23, just take a little step back and put the time frame again together. 40 years, 40 years, now he's ready. So we're almost to the point where he's ready. Verse 23, during that long period, and again, we've learned that long period is 40 years, the king of Egypt died. Who died? Thutmosis III, one of the longest ruling pharaohs of the new kingdom. Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. Now, notice the language here. That this should be this should remind you of what we'd read many, many times in Genesis. God heard their groaning, and He remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What covenant? The Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Okay, now he's, Moses isn't quite ready because as God now intervenes in the burning bush, Moses is going to give God all of the reasons why he's making a mistake and choosing him to be the deliverer. He is. He's going to itemize. Here are the reasons why I'm not the man, God. But what I want to do here, we'll never get this done, but we can get it started. Chapter 3, listen to this, listen to this sentence, a very important sentence. Chapter 3, theologically, is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. So now we're putting together the priest of Midian, verse 16 of chapter 2, Ruel, verse 18 of chapter 2, and now verse 1 of chapter 3. Put all of them together, the same man. This is Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, Zipporah's father. Priest of Midian, he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, if you look 
on the map that's on page <coughs> uh, uh, nine of your of your uh, uh, note. Here, here's Midian. This is where he has been. So he takes the flocks across the Gulf of Aqaba, perhaps up this way and down. But anyway, he's over here in the southern, the southern end of the Arabian Peninsula. And we're going to talk a little more about some of those items and details when we get to the Exodus itself. So, I mean, as you know, when you're grading large flocks of animals, different times of year, you move your flocks. In the summer, you want to have your flocks in more of the hill country, where it's cooler, where there's some residual moisture, where there's enough green grass for them. That's what he's doing. He's moving, he's moving Jethro's herds over to the hills, i.e. really the mountains, where it's cooler, where you still have enough residue moisture, and you, you have enough green grass for them to, to, to be able to survive. So that's what he's doing. There's nothing terribly difficult. It's just telling us, he's at Horeb. But we learn from that verse, the mountain of God. Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. You will see that as we get a little bit later into, into the book of Exodus. There, verse 2, the angel of the Lord. Now, we have talked about this a dozen times because it's all through the book of Exodus, uh, of Genesis. The angel of the Lord is a theophany, right? Remember that? The theophany. This is the appearance of God. To appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. I want to suggest something to you. In flames of fire within a bush. This is figurative types of description. Is this the Shekinah glory of God? Is this the glory of God manifest? I want to suggest it is. This is God, now listen carefully, this is God manifesting his glory in this bush. Okay, Moses is herding the flocks of Jethro. He's in the cooler, higher mountains, which is where you would be in the hot days of summer. Moses saw that through the bush, was on, though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. God's getting his attention. He's seeing something. To, to see something burning in an area, lightning strike, it's dry, that's not unusual. That is not an unusual to th thing to see. What is unusual is it's not being consumed. This is a manifestation of the glory of God here. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses responded, here I am. We saw this in chapter 22 of Genesis when God calls Abraham, 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 here I am, here I am, when he asked him to offer Isaac. We see it in chapter 46 when Jacob is called. And you see it, if you want to fast forward to another place, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, when, when Samuel's called. Samuel, Samuel, here I am, he responds. So it, it, it's, it's a classic statement by someone who is aligning with God. Okay, I'm available. What do you want? He's not ignoring it. He's not pushing back. He's not resisting. What do you want? Here I am. I'm available. Verse 5. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. 
I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Okay? Now listen, you, that sh- this should not be unfamiliar to you. This is the covenant name, the covenant title, covenant reminder. Does Moses know of the covenant? Yes. So God is identifying himself in terms of the covenant. That should not be new to Moses. don't think it was. At this time, Moses hid his face because he's afraid to look at God. Holy ground, I mean, that's a natural response. See it in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees the enthroned God, he's in that vision in temple in heaven and so on. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. Verse 7, I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering. Though I have come down. We see that. We saw it in Genesis 10 when God comes down to the Tower of Babel. We saw it in Genesis 6 when God comes down to see the iniquity right before he destroys the world. We saw it in Genesis 19 when God comes down to Sodom and Gomorrah to gain the evidence. Is this as unjust and wicked as I think it is, so to speak? So God is about to intervene. To do what? To rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. See, that none of these verses should surprise you. This is the language that was used with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to give you the land. What land? The land of Canaan, where the Perizzites and Hivites and Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites, everybody, they're going to, I'm going to give you that land. So for Moses, this is a watershed. God is about to fulfill his covenant promise. He's going to liberate my people from Egypt. So now, verse 10, I am sending you to Pharaoh. This is what Moses was not expecting. You're the man, Moses. You're going to lead them out. You're going to take them into the land of the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Perizzites. And so Moses is saying, I'm ready, Lord. 80 years of preparation. I'm preaching here, so I'll stop. I'm ready, Lord. Isn't that what he's going to say? No, he's going to articulate all the reasons why God has just made a mistake. I am not the one. Don't choose me. Choose somebody else. Is this, uh, you know, in verse 9, he says, I have seen the oppression. And, and he sees sin then. Uh, and we as individuals, when we go about our own lives, and if we engage whatever in, he, because we are his child through Christ, he sees that as well, even though we think, because he he sees not only outwardly, he, he sees the heart into our heart, yeah, absolutely. what mm-hmm. we're doing and what mm-hmm. motivates us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So he's current. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> absolutely. It's important, too, to understand in verse 9, which is what Fred was alluding to as well, now the God of justice is about to act. The God of and sovereign Lord of history is about to act. This is always always the struggle we have 
when we see injustice and oppression and exploitation, it almost seems as if God takes so long to act. How long does it take God to act? Well, they will, by the time they leave Egypt, they will have been in Egypt 430 years. That's a long time. But what happened during that time? The birth of the nation. They go from a tiny clan to a huge nation. And in God's providence, in God's sovereignty, if, he, if we, these are the words we always struggle, what verb do we use? God permits this for a greater end. What's the greater end? When they leave Egypt, after 430 years, they will plunder Egypt of its wealth. They will take the wealth of Egypt with them. Right? Well, I mean, we'll learn that. That's coming up quite a few chapters till we get that. So, I mean, it's just, it's so hard because you and I, you and I, God, why is it taking, but I've seen it, I've observed it, now I'm going to act. In verse 10, Moses, you're the man. You are the one who's going to do it. So what we see in verse 11, this is where we will not get through all of this. Moses begins to offer the objections why he is not the one. So let's, let's deal with the first one, and, and then it will be just about done. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Legitimate question? Who am I? I mean, I, 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 was, I was in the court of Pharaoh. I was under Hatshepsut's tutelage and so on. But they're all dead, Lord. Who am I to do this? I've been in Midian for 40 years. In verse 12, God says this to everyone. I will be with you. Now, for Moses, that should have said, got it, Lord, I'm ready. No, and he goes on, God goes on, and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. What mountain? Mount Horeb. Mount Sinai. Remember, that's where he is. Moses? To validate that I am calling you, one of the reasons I want you to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt is so they can come to Mount Sinai, the mountain of the Lord, and worship me. And so Moses, it's listen, I believe it's starting to hit Moses. Wow, God really means this. So Moses gives excuse number two. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what's his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you shall say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord. Now, all of your translations have that in caps. Now, what you should be able to do, whether you want to write it in your Bible, draw the lines in your Bible, verse 14, I am who I am, and then the end of verse 14, I am, and then Yahweh, Lord, in verse 15, they're all connected because they all are the same Hebrew consonants. 
Remember, Hebrew is a, is a language of consonants. There are no vowels in Hebrew. The vowels were added much, much later in the history of the language. So this is the this is insight into the most important name of God in the Bible, Yahweh. The great I am. The I am, I am. What does that mean? The self-sufficient, self-existent God. Self-sufficient, self-existent. He's uncaused. Self-sufficient. He doesn't need anyone. He's the I am. Now, let's, let's make sure we see the significance of this. Fast forward 1,450 years to Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John. Two years into his public ministry. He's 32 years old. He's on Temple Mount debating with the Pharisees in John chapter 8. And they are going back into one of the most intense debates in the scriptures. They're going back and forth, back and forth. And Jesus says, you know, Abraham, near the end of the chapter, Abraham delighted to see my day. And they look at him and say, we're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Remember Jesus' response? Before Abraham was, I am. And the Greek I am is ego emi, which you could translate I am, I am. So now listen, if you're a Pharisee and you see this rabbi say, ego emi, I am, I am, what verse are you going to think of? Exodus 3.14. What is Jesus Christ claiming on Temple Mount, A.D. 32? I am Jehovah. And that's why you could outline the book of John, the Gospel of John, around the seven I am statements of Jesus. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the bread of life. I am the life. I am the resurrection. All of those are ego ami, ego ami, ego ami. You see, arguably and indisputably and incontrovertibly, I'm trying to use all the adverbs that really dump on this, Jesus Christ, without any equivocation, is claiming to be Yahweh. That's why whenever J.W. comes to my door, I always ask them to compare John 8.58 and Exodus 3.14 and say to them, please prove to me why Jesus is not claiming to be Yahweh because you're denying he is. You don't believe he's Jehovah. You believe Jehovah created Jesus. The Bible doesn't allow you to say that, but that's what they believe. And, and this, this, this verse, it's a revelatory verse. By this verse, I mean verse 14, is a revelatory verse connecting us to the meaning and background and understanding of where Yahweh comes from and why it's so important. Self-existent, self-sufficient God of the universe. And that Jesus makes that claim about himself is nothing short of extraordinary. You cannot sit on the fence with Jesus. He doesn't allow you to do that. You can't just say he's a great man. That's not what he claimed to be. Jesus Christ claimed to be the Yahweh that talked to Moses, the Yahweh that created the universe, the Yahweh that gave Israel their law. You just can't say he's a great man. He is that, but he's far, 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 far more than that. How would you compare God's love of the Jews 
then and God, God's love for the men around this table today, is there a difference? Nope. I mean, he would go to this extent of caring for each well, the, individual man around this table well, and for the, a different purpose. Well, it's it's a it's a Fred. It's a redemptive purpose. I mean, the book Exodus is the redemption of is the Israelites from Egypt. You know, the redeem redeem is free, freeing of the and so God's redemptive plan for you and me is the same thing. It's 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 intentional on God's part. It's not based on anything that we deserve, but that God, God in His love seeks to redeem us, and all he's asking us to do is pick up the free gift on the table because he's done it all. He's paid that wonderful redemptive price. And it's just, I, I just, this is why it's just such a fun book to study because you see God directly, intentionally, and decisively intervening in history to accomplish his purposes. And he's using some of the most powerful people in the ancient world to accomplish that. He'll do the same thing in Daniel. You know, the same thing. Most powerful people in the ancient world, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus the Great, Darius the Great, to accomplish his purposes. Go to the ministry of Jesus Christ. He's the most powerful people in the world. Caesar Augustus, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. For what purpose? To get Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem. So from that perspective, Caesar Augustus is like a little speck on the books of history. What is really important is what happened in Bethlehem. But from the human historical perspective, let's study Caesar Augustus more than we study Jesus. And yet Rome today, you go to Rome and study the ruins. There's nothing of Rome to study except ruins. But Jesus, (coughs) 1.4 billion people worship him as Lord. Amen. I would say, just being intellectually honest, Jesus made a greater impact on history than Caesar Augustus did. That's why history is such a fun thing to study from a biblical perspective. But you know, I'm way over time here. Is it all right the way we're doing this? I mean, I'm really going down a lot of bunny trails, but it brings this out, hopefully, and makes it come alive. I want to pick up right away with verse 14 next week in chapter 3, and just build on there as we look at the Lord respond to the objections of Moses. Let's pray for Woody as we close here. Lord, we're thankful for our time of study together. This is a remarkable book. It is you providentially organizing in that mysterious way the events of history to accomplish your purposes for your glory, which is a redemptive purpose so often. That's certainly what you're about to do. Redeem the children of Israel from Egypt, where they've been for 430 years, now enslaved, oppressed, exploited by Pharaoh. You're about to bring that to an end through Moses, your instrument that you took 80 years to prepare. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for that. You are accomplishing your purposes. What is really, really, really important is not what's on CNN or Fox News. What is really, really, really important is what is happening as lives are transformed by Christ. That's eternally significant. 
that will last. The rulers today that we see as unstable and so on, they're not going to last. They're not going to be around very long. But the impact of Jesus is eternal. And that's in each one of our lives, I trust that's occurred. The impact of Jesus, we've picked up the gift. His death, burial, resurrection, his ascension back to the Father has changed us because we've appropriated all that by faith to our lives. Thank you for the privilege we have to study your word together, to learn from your word, and to continue to allow you to develop us into men of faith who make a difference as we serve you and represent you. We think of Woody today. Um, He shared with Fred, apparently, that he may need to go to the hospital. We hope that doesn't need to occur. Bring healing to his body. Give him added strength for the day as well. And I, I think even his wife is not doing real well either. So we would pray for her too. So dismiss us now with your blessing in Christ's name. Amen.